So we started on our investigation of Sila this morning with a question in the hall. And it just so happened that the topic of the talk tonight will allow us to extend our investigation into this area of practice. So let's start with the meaning of the term, the translation of the word sila. I came up with three different, slightly different iterations of what this meant. But they all seem pretty close together to me. It can be considered to be moral discipline, ethical training, moral restraint. And in thinking about these Buddhist topics, I always like to think first about where it fits into the scheme as a whole, where it fits into the Buddha's own system of explanation. So this is part of the Eightfold Path. And it is, in particular, step three, samavaka, wise speech, sama kamanta, wise action, which is step four, and step five, which is sama avija, wise livelihood. And it's also found in the five precepts, which, of course, we, we took today. And the precepts and these three steps on the Eightfold Path largely overlap with each other. The Eightfold Path uh, doesn't explicitly address restraint from the use of intoxicants like the precepts do. And the Eightfold Path directly addresses wise livelihood and the five precepts don't but you can consider them to be largely coextensive. The Buddha also references uh, Sila when he's talking about the gradual training. And he talks about the gradual training as starting with the taking of the precepts. So that's where it is on the map. And then the question comes up, well, how do you understand this ethical conduct in sila. I mean, what's it all about? Yeah, it's in the path. Yeah, there's the precepts. And I think the key to it all is to realize that it's all about skillful means. And this phrase skillful means is very often used in talking about the Buddha Dharma. And it might be good to give a definition about what that actually is. So you could say a general meaning is actions, choices, and views which are conducive to movement towards freedom and liberation. So it's kind of a functional way of looking at it. Actions, choices, and views which are conducive to movement towards freedom and liberation. It's a definition that focuses on what works and is pragmatic and not in and of itself moralistic. And you can, you can come to understand that the Buddhist path really isn't one of condemnation, but it's practical. So the inquiry is always, what's actually going on here? And given that, and given what the goal is, What's the best way to proceed in furtherance of the goal? And it's important to keep the pragmatism of this whole area in view, especially because of some of the conditioning that we as Westerners bring to this topic. When we as Westerners talk about ethical behavior, very often we bring to the conversation our own uh, cultural overlay. There's a monotheistic view in particular that many of us have been taught, which involves uh, reference to an all-powerful God 
who has informed us what he wants us to do, and we should do this or it is sin. And, you know, if we sin, we are a sinner, uh, and that means that we're a bad person. And if we're bad enough, we'll be punished perhaps eternally for our transgressions. If we're obedient with God's will for us, we'll be rewarded perhaps forever. Now, I know that's kind of a cartoon version uh, of monotheism. You know, obviously, there are other ways to hold this way of looking. But I think very often for us, especially if we've been raised um, in these particular cultures where religion has been strict and literal, we do bring this lens to this topic. And in its fundamentalist form, of course, this can be described as instructions from above, absolute rules which are very specific, extensive, and often ritualistic, an emphasis on obedience or punishment, and a post-death assignment to eternal residence in heaven or hell. But we've got a bit of a issue here with Buddhism because Buddhism doesn't rely on a deity. So then the question is, well, then how does morality fit into this whole scheme? How does sila fit into this explanation of why sila should be practiced? And I think you need to look at the Buddha's primary insights, and you will come to understand how sila fits into this. If we looked at the life of the Buddha, we would say it describes his discovery of the pervasive nature of suffering, and then his own personal and heroic quest to find liberation from that suffering. And once he reached his own liberation and his own understanding, he had a real challenge, which was, how am I going to put this into words? How am I going to ever explain this so that people can understand and put into practice what they need to do in order to attain freedom for themselves? So he formulated his teaching basically in the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, this being the framework describing the problem of suffering and how to find freedom from it. And the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths are a description of how things are and given that, how to use the way reality works to become free. There's a key point here, the conditioned nature of things. It's very critical to understand the significance of dependent origination as a key Buddhist insight. Everything happens in causal patterns. So, for instance, uh, in the Samyutta Nikaya, the Buddha says, when there is this, there is that. When there is not this, there is not that. When this arises, that arises. When this ceases, that ceases. So he's saying, look to the interrelationship of things. On the night he awakened, he saw clearly the causes of suffering and how the suffering arose in a conditioned way from ignorance, craving, and a wrong view of self. And then when, once he understood how it came to be, then he saw how it could be released undone, or how it could be deconstructed. And he describes that in the Eightfold Path. So you could say the Eightfold Path explicates how to use the reality of causation to our advantage. And so Buddhist ethical views are part of the path of liberation. They're not just about being a good person. 
they're a path factor. They have to do with whether the mind is actually able to open in understanding. So to look a little bit more at the Eightfold Path and the, the role of these three steps in it, you'd have to say, well, there's, there are two steps that come first. There's wise view, which is all about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path itself. And then there's wise intention. And you really need to look at wise intention and what's in that in order to go into a clear understanding of what the next three steps, the sila steps, are really talking about. So, right intention or wise intention focuses on the idea of resolve or aspiration. It's the intention to exert our will in order to move towards an end of suffering. When we're talking about wise intention, we're saying we want to move forward towards liberation and we'll use our energy accordingly. So we're saying this is where we want to go. Okay, we're heading in this direction. This is the direction I need to go. I need to turn the energies of the body and mind in this direction. So intrinsic to this is saying that we'll conduct ourselves in ways that are conducive to spiritual progress. In In other words, in ways that loosen the bonds of ignorance, greed, and hatred, and that cultivate the opposites. Non-delusion, better known as wisdom, generosity, renunciation, and loving-kindness, compassion, otherwise described as harmlessness. So the second section of the Eightfold Path is where we really get into the, the meat of the sila steps. Wise speech, wise action, right livelihood are basically a framework to avoid unskillful thoughts and actions that will get in the way of progress on the path. And again, a key idea is that reality is conditioned. It's lawful. The present moment is caused by conditions arising from causes in the past and arising in the present and manifesting in the now. What we do now is causation for arisings that will manifest in the future. And therefore it's in our interest to make choices and create conditions that will support our aspirations towards freedom. So we're saying it's possible to front load conditions supportive to our own awakening by exercising basic moral restraint. Sila should be considered as skillful means to support the arising of conditions conducive to liberation and to support the cessation of conditions that are not. So on this topic of sila and what is skillful about sila, there there are some particular things that I think are useful to say. I talked earlier about, it's skillful means, it's skillful means, you know, it's moving in the right direction, it's functional. So how exactly does it work? Well, if you have the experience of having mindfulness that is strong, pure, and continuous. There is an absence of greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind. That's one way to define (laughs) mindfulness. Is when mindfulness is like that, then those other things aren't there. However, I think you'll agree that this is often not the state of the average worldling, perhaps just from watching your own mind. Now with that strong, pure, and continuous 
mindfulness, thinking of things in terms of sila terms would probably be a lot less necessary because it would be kind of automatic. If the mind is clear, it's absent aversion and grasping, sila is going to be very strong also. But it's usually not like that. At least it's not like that for very long. So then you could take a look and say, well, what's sila doing? It's helping to keep the car from running off the road. It's a little bit like those rumble strips that you, you know, have along the highway where you're, when your tire starts to, you know, drift off to the shoulder or it is going over the center line, you start hearing this bump, a bump, a bump, a bump, a bump, a bump, and it kind of wakes you up before it goes too far. So there's that function that sila performs, these sila precepts. When the mind is clouded, it's, they're important reminders. Sometimes they're the only thing we, we can remember when we're having uh, a lot of churning of the kalesa states. Oh, yeah, I guess you shouldn't do that. Oh, yeah, see, see the precepts. I remember now. Another meaningful aspect of sila is that it's seen as being foundational to the entire path and necessary for the success of the other trainings. The, a monk once asked the Buddha to give it to him short. Give it to him short and sweet. He says, what do I really need to do? And he said, first establish yourself in the starting point of wholesome states, that is in purified moral discipline and right view. So he's saying, understand context, first step of the Eightfold Path, observe sila. Then when your moral discipline is purified and your view straight, you should practice the four foundations of mindfulness. Sila first is being suggested. Then practice meditation. So Sila gets you started on the path of development and then further purification of mind takes place when you move into the meditative practices themselves. And this makes all kind of sense when you think about it. Can you imagine in the time the Buddha was a very warlike time, just as our own is? You know, somebody coming for teachings. And if you have to, the first thing you have to say to them is, you know, tie up the stolen horse and leave your bloody sword outside. Their sitting is probably not going to go too well. So this also goes to the point of the practice of sila being a, pr- a protector of the mind stream because it prevents actions that lead to remorse and guilt and regret. And when the mind is free of those states, it's a lot easier for it to clear and settle. It becomes more workable, more pliant. There are fewer storms sweeping through, fewer memories of things that might have been done in the past. Less judgment arising. Another way that sila is skillful is that it's a protector for the self and for others. And if you think about this, a community, no matter what kind of community it is, whether it's a sangha, a family, a workplace, an environment where sila is strong and practiced is a safe place to be. Actions aren't intentionally harmful and the seeds of future turmoil are not sown. And so it's easier to have clarity and trust and peace emerge in that kind of environment because there's a baseline of decency. 
I had a very interesting uh, thing happen when I was working as the project director at the Forest Refuge. So I was involved with the construction of the Up the Hill. And I was, would work with the architects and I would work with the contractors and then, you know, I would go to these construction meetings and there would be carpenters and all the different trades there in some way or another. And this conversation started with the architect and it was, what kind of locks do you want on the rooms? And I said, well... We don't really, we don't really need locks on the rooms. And then we would have a conversation about locks on the rooms and why we didn't need locks on the rooms. And then when we got a contractor and he was looking through the architectural drawings, he in the specs he'd say, "I noticed that you haven't specified what kind of locks you want on the doors in the rooms." And I'd say, well, we don't need locks on the doors. We don't need locks on the rooms. We'd have that chat. And then when the guys were there hanging the doors, the subcontractors were there hanging the doors, they'd go to the, the project manager on site and they'd say, Eddie, where's the locks for the doors? And we'd say, we don't have locks for the doors. Well, when are you going to get the locks for the doors? We don't need the locks for the doors. It was, when you think about that, that's a very profound statement that there can be places in the world where you don't need locks on the doors and how different that is from most places. And perhaps a last skillful aspect of sila is this. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, At the karmic level, the observance of sila ensures harmony with the cosmic law of karma. Hence, favorable results in the course of future movement through the round of repeated birth and death. Or as the Buddha says, part of the streams of merit, streams of the wholesome, nourishment of happiness that are heavenly, ripening in happiness, conducive to happiness that lead to whatever is wished for, loved and agreeable to one's welfare and happiness. So he's pointing to a karmic result from the observance of sila that it has long-ranging future implications when this is practiced. And of course, for some of us Westerners, that seems implausible. That's okay. Don't need to believe. But you may see. You may even have some of this ripening right now to be here on this retreat. So let's talk a little bit about the three cornerstones of sila, the three steps. And I'm just going to touch these briefly because there's a lot of detail possible with each one of these, and I think there's going to be a separate talk on uh, right speech or wise speech. And each of these easily could be a separate talk in and of itself, but I'll give it to you briefly. Right speech, interestingly enough, this comes first in the grouping, and this is also uh, reiterated in the precepts, meaning abstaining from lying, divisive speech, abusive speech, idle chatter. It's interesting because this is, these are phrased as don't do this, 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 refrain from But you could positively phrase it, too. You could say, speak using words that are true, friendly, and benevolent, pleasant, and gentle, meaningful, and useful. 
The next one is wise action or right action, which addresses how to live in daily life. Negatively phrased, abstain from taking life, stealing, sexual misconduct, false speech, taking intoxicants, which lead to heedlessness. So if you were to positively phrase that, you could say something like, knowing how deeply our lives entwine, I undertake the training to undertake the training to protect life, take only what is freely given to me, protect relationships and to avoid sexual misconduct, speak truthfully and kindly, protect the clarity of my mind through avoiding intoxicants. So the uh, Thich Nhat Hanh community uh, works with these in a positive way, or at least I've seen that comment the affirmative statement of these. Uh, Right livelihood, wise livelihood, the last of these, which incorporates the idea of harmlessness towards other beings. States you should not work or earn a living by doing things which cause harm to others. And there's a direct echo in this back, and in all three of them, back to wise intention and what was talked about with that. So if you phrase it negatively, it's refrain from trading in arms and lethal weapons, intoxicants, poisons, killing animals, cheating, also business and human beings like slave trading and prostitution, Dishonest means of gaining wealth like scheming, persuading, hinting, and belittling. That seems to eliminate large portions of the economy. But (laughs) If you were going to positively phrase it, you would say, work and earn a living in ways that express loving kindness, compassion, respect, and support for living beings. And just as an aside here, I wish to clarify, the Buddha didn't have a problem with wealth in and of itself. In fact, he would talk about righteous wealth righteously gained. So being successful, making money, is not a problem unless it's done in a way that is damaging and harmful to others in the ways that have been talked about, or if you use your wealth in ways that are damaging and harmful um, to others or to yourself. Now, let's have a little side conversation here. We had this question this morning about law and legality and sila. And then when we ended the sitting and went back into the staff dining room, we had a little flurry of conversation uh, among ourselves about this whole topic. So I decided, okay, this is worth talking about some more because hmm, we've got our cultural overlay of uh, religion is part of what we bring to this. But the other cultural overlay that we bring to this is what is legal, what the law says about things. So I was thinking about this this afternoon. So I started by asking myself some questions on this topic. And the first one was, do, law, do laws reflect embody sila? And sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes the laws are just very pragmatic things like no right turn at this light or you must file your income tax by April 15th. Clearly not a high uh, sila 
content, more of like regulation for the society and how it needs to work as a complex cooperative endeavor. And sometimes laws definitely don't embody sila. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't, but they're just pragmatic. Sometimes they're actually violate sila, the concepts that are represented in the teachings on sila. So let me fade back just a minute and talk about the fact that human beings have a natural moral sense. We seem to be born with it. I saw something really interesting, um, and it it was um, a study that was done using infants who are really young. I want to say like six months pre preverbal. And what they would do with these infants is they would, there was like a little stage behind which somebody was operating two little puppets. Anybody see see this on the video? Two little puppets. They're like little sock puppets. And they had this little ball and the sock puppets would pass it back and forth between each other. And then they would watch the reaction of the babies, these infants watching this. And they found that when they changed the experiment so that one of the sock puppets was essentially hogging the ball and wouldn't give it over, you know, would get it and then would keep it and wouldn't give it to the other one. And they measured the nonverbal reactions of the baby to the puppets and which ones they reached for. They didn't like the nasty one. So there's some kind of very early moral sense that we have as humans. Um, that is operant. Interestingly enough, too, there's some indication that, for instance, some of the bonding hormones that we humans uh, have as part of our physical setup have something to do with us feeling care and concern and interest for others. But this is a tricky part of being human, apparently, because it seems to suggest that the same thing that causes us to bond with, care for, and be concerned for certain people, like maybe members of our immediate family or our own children or, you know, intimate partners or people like us, people that we have a lot of things in common, There's a suggestion in some of the research that that very same thing that causes us to be able to form a we, a caring we, also has an edge to it. And when you're out, you're out. So this is part of our dilemma as human beings is how difficult it is to generalize these um, intentions of harmlessness towards everyone. So, in thinking about this issue of law, law and sila, and natural morality, I asked myself, can the natural moral sense of right and wrong get bound up in delusion? And the answer to that is clearly yes. You could say fundamentalism is a form of delusion, which often uses the language of morality. Moralistic language can be used in the service of power and control and override the well-being of others. And some simple examples of that, for instance, in the United States, within my lifetime, and I'm not that old, the southern part of the United States had laws, this is part of the law, that segregated public spaces by race. And if you violated that law you could and would be arrested and taken to jail for violating part of the criminal code. In some parts of the world, even now, there are laws, 
for instance, forbidding the education of females or restricting their ability to be uh, out in public without being covered. So yes, things can get bound up in delusion. So then the next question is, can it sometimes be an expression of the values of sila, of moral restraint, to break a law? Yeah. When you look at how segregation was undone in the South, it was largely through people breaking the law in a very deliberate, public, nonviolent fashion in order to highlight the injustice of what was being done. Another example of, uh, of this would be demonstrations against the regime in Burma when they were illegal. Yeah, it was illegal, but it was moral. It was in accord with Sila. It was right speech to say there is corruption, there is oppression, there is cruelty, and dishonesty here. Now some laws reflect a legitimate expression of morality and are completely congruent with sila. So an example of this would be laws against child abuse. The law says you can't do this. Sila says that's unskillful action. And one thing to point out here is meeting the legal standard very often is kind of a low bar for behavior, isn't it? I mean, yes, you wouldn't... It's illegal to abuse your child, but I think most parents who have a level of development would like to do a lot better than just not abusing their kid. There are other things that might be legal but might not necessarily line up with sila. So for instance, it's legal to drink alcohol but restraint from intoxicants which cause heedlessness is one of the precepts. So I'm going to sidestep the whole question of does that mean you can never have a glass of wine with your turkey. Oh, you're not going to have turkey. Okay, so we won't, <laughs> we won't need to worry about that. Uh, but we'll just put that one to the side. And you can give the question to whoever's going to do the questions and answers tomorrow morning. <laughs> so there's another piece of this, which is The language of sila can also be corrupted and misused. And you can see this sometimes in our our own communities. And this can be in in the form of what I would call uh, a sila smackdown. (laughs) (laughs) Which is when the language of sila is used to get someone to stop doing something that bothers you. (laughs) So an example of this, for instance, has been in some communities where there has been sexual misconduct on the part of a teacher, and that's become publicly known, that's been raised in in the community, Uh, often by people who have been um, victimized by this. And some members of the community or the community as a whole has said, wrong speech, wrong speech, wrong speech. It's divisive, it's harsh, it's this, there's no compassion. No, but it's true. It's useful, really useful, it's really necessary That's an example of how 
when delusion is mixed in <laughs> with the understanding of some of these things, it can, it can go sideways. Even the language of morality can go sideways if the mind isn't, isn't clear. But even with all this complication that I've just described, the key thing to remember is the place of sila in the path to liberation. So we're saying that we can, by our choice of actions, set in motion conditions which are conducive to our growth and awakening by undertaking training, and this is a training in sila, we move toward a mind that's happy, open, free from remorse and anxiety and easily concentrated. To practice sila well, we have to move beyond moralism and that kind of rule-bound automaticity. We need to use mindfulness, we need to use clear perception, clear comprehension, and a commitment to the growth of our own wisdom, compassion, and loving kindness. And there are many dilemmas. There are many gray areas here. I've said the basic principles. I've said some particular subparts of each, each of them. But the application of these principles in daily life requires intelligent engagement not a teacher telling you what you you should do in a specific case. This is more of an exploration than it is uh, formulaic. This process of application of these principles in daily life supports the development of our own grounded understanding as we deepen our own ability to see causation and choose in a way that supports our deepest aspiration. The Buddha himself often contemplated his complete harmlessness. Imagine having a mind so refined that one of the things that gave you the greatest joy was the thought that no being anywhere in all the world, worlds, all the universes, had anything at all to fear from you. And in fact, the practice of these precepts are spoken of as pristine, traditional, ancient gifts, which give immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression, and which in turn give to the practitioner the same gifts of freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. So in a way, it's an act of generosity, an act of dana, to train in sila and to observe it. I want to tell a particular story here. About sila. And this comes from a documentary that I watched recently uh, that was put out by public television in the United States, and it was called The Man Who Saved the World. Documentary with the title, The Man Who Saved the World. And the documentary was about something that happened 50 years ago between the Soviet Union and the United States, and it involved a struggle over the presence of missiles that the Soviet Union had moved to Cuba, better known as 90 miles away from the shores of the United States. So to tell you a little bit about this, you'd have to know that at the time the United States and the Soviet Union each had nuclear capacity to destroy each other 
20 times over. And those of you who are older may remember what was going on during this period of time. The younger ones of you may have never heard about this or may just have some vague knowledge of it. But basically what happened was it came down to one person on a submarine who had the decision about whether or not to let a nuclear-tipped missile be launched. And just to talk about this a little bit, you'd have to set the stage with understanding what it was like in uh, the United States, and I think this is true in Western Europe too, to some extent. After the Second World War, the Western world and the Soviet Union became very polarized. East Germany was completely sealed off, was under communist domination. All the Eastern European countries were under Soviet rule, uh, very oppressive. Rebellions that were there were put down by force. It was an era in the Soviet Union of gulags and concentration camps, work camps, people disappearing, very iron control by, by the government with the United States very much polarized with the Soviet Union, which had itself developed a nuclear weapon. The United States, of course, developed it first and used it twice in the Second World War. So we were enemies. And growing up in this era, you would have to understand that We practiced hiding under our desks at school in case the alarm sounded that indicated that the warheads and the bombs were coming. This was like a routine drill in school. There's a movie out about it, a kind of funny movie about this period of time called Duck and Cover. And you would practice going under your desk and, you know, wrap yourself up and, you know, So it was very realistic to think that this could happen at any time. So at the time this event was going on in Cuba, I'll say more about it, I was living in, on a military base in upstate New York, not too far from the Canadian border. And on this military base, which was an Air Force base, there were B-52s with nuclear weapons. There were B-47s with nuclear weapons. These are aircraft. And then built into the side of the mountains, the Adirondack Mountains up there, there were Atlas missile silos kind of drilled down into the mountain to be protected from direct strike. And these also had nuclear warheads. And they were on bases here. There were bases around the world. At a certain point, close to the time of this episode, the United States put missiles into Turkey and Italy. The the ones in Turkey could reach Moscow. Soviets felt that was a, a great provocation. And when Cuba fell to the communists, the Soviet Union took the opportunity to secretly move missiles into Cuba and set up a missile base there. And they snuck them in, but the United States found out about it. And once they found out about it, there was this reaction like, what are they doing? They're bringing them really close here. They're getting ready to do it. It's way too close. They could launch something. It could hit us in half an hour. They could take out Washington. They could take out New York. They could take out all the major cities. They could get us before we could protect ourselves. 
in any kind of way. And the whole thing at this period of time in the world was held together. There was this, uh, it was called the um, balance of terror or mutually assured destruction. This is how the world was not so long ago. And the idea was, well, if you, if you do that to us, you know that we can do that to you, so nobody would be nutty enough to do it if we both know we each could do it. So this is what passed for stability in the world at the time. So when, when the United States found out these missiles were in Cuba, they said, this can't, we can't have this, this can't be allowed. And began this process of trying to make the Soviets remove them from Cuba. And first the Soviets denied they had them there, and there was a lot of this going back and forth at the UN and you know, being non-responsive and all the rest of it. And I can remember what it was like living on the, on the base at, when this was happening, as this crisis sort of ratcheted up. So first you'd have to understand that when, you, when, I went to, when we went to church on the base. There were pews that were reserved for men in flight suits who were on alert. This is true all the time. And at any time in the course of the service, all of a sudden the lights might, a special light would start flashing, and then these guys would get up and they would run out of the building and get in their special truck and drive to the flight line and they would get in the cockpits of the plane and they would start the plane, which had nuclear weapons on it, and would get ready to take off and then would be like, oh, it's a drill. But they wouldn't know that at the time. So this was kind of like routine life in the village. And it got very quiet among the adults. The dinnertime conversations got very quiet as the level of alert, the level of preparedness ratcheted up day by day with the United States confronting the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union stonewalling it. Soviet Union was still sending more ships heading towards, heading towards Cuba with more of these on them. And President Kennedy was the, the president at the time. And he set up this national talk to the nation on television and told everybody what was going on. That, you know, there are missiles here, there are more missiles that are coming, they're really close, you know, we can't allow this to happen, it's too dangerous, they would have the possibility to take us out. In other words, it had upset this balance of power, this deterrent. We have to block it. And he said, we're going to put a quarantine around Cuba, we're going to keep them from moving any missiles in. So any ships that are approaching Cuba, our Navy is going to stop them and board them and inspect them to see what they've got in the cargo. And if they have this kind of thing, they're not getting in. So for days, the public was watching this as the ships from the Soviet Union continued their path towards Cuba. The United States started was ringing the island with our Navy ships. Nobody was blinking. So my father started being gone longer during the day. And then it got to a point where he wasn't home at night. So then when I was in school, I was in grade school, the other kids who were in grade school started to disappear. So some of their families were taking them out of school and sending them away sending them to some place that they thought might be safer in case there was a nuclear strike on the base. Because the base was a huge target, because it had nuclear weapons. And the epicenter of the base was uh, 500 yards from my house. So we knew what was going on. The president actually moved the alert status during this period of time up to a status that was the closest to nu- the next step down from launching nuclear war. So there were planes in the air, 
with the bombs, already moving towards the Soviet Union, Soviet targets. They said they would go so far and then they would come back or they would refuel. So they were like hovering, hovering. They were in the air so they couldn't all be destroyed by strikes. And the national mood was fear, was terror. Like, are we going to have a war? Are we going to have a nuclear war? Is this going to be it? And it really seemed that it could be. And in the the early stages of this, which gets back to the point of the story, the Soviet Union launched four submarines from the Arctic, giving the commanders of these submarines the order that they could launch nuclear torpedoes at their discretion if they felt it was necessary. So there hadn't been nuclear torpedoes before, for the Soviets at least. And the way that you would launch these nuclear torpedoes is you needed two guys, each of whom had half a key. And this is the way the nuclear missile silos work for us, too. And I, I know because one day after church we went there for a tour. It's not something everybody does after church, but <laughs> we did. So these four subs were coming to reinforce the militarization of Cuba, basically. And they had these orders, you can do this if you need to. And at some point, the United States fleet, which had started patrolling this area very heavily, became aware that these subs were heading to Cuba. So the subs are coming. They have the torpedoes. They have no communication with Moscow. So they're cut off from their home base. They are, however, picking up what's going on from Miami in the United States. The talk about war, the talk about quarantine, the talk about how nuclear weapons might be imminently launched. They're hearing all this from the U.S. side. They're hearing nothing from home. And these ships, are these older diesel vessels, very poor containers for a long voyage. So they have problems with the subs. So they're starting to experience, for instance, heat in the vessel. They got to the point where the coolest place in the, in the submarine was 110 degrees Fahrenheit. They would rotate guys in there for a brief period of time because it was cool. <laughs> They would go in there, get cooled down to 110 degrees. One, one water glass a day. They had no water. They were running out of food. Their batteries were running low. They had to remain submerged because otherwise they would be spotted. No communications from home. So at a certain point here, the U.S., Navy finds them. They spot the subs underneath. And they see them coming towards Cuba. The subs don't know that it, by this point the U.S. government and the Soviet government are talking. Some sane ones are, you know, talking to each other. Hey, this is really bad. And they don't know that the order has been given not to sink the subs, but instead to force them to surface. Moscow knows this, but the subs don't know this. These guys on the sub don't know this. And the Americans don't know that the subs don't know it. So there's an information vacuum and void. So the Americans get the subs, and they start to try to make them surface. So they start pounding them with sonar, sonar waves hitting the, 
hitting the sub, hitting the sub, hitting the sub. It's like, you think our construction noise is bad. It's like being in a metal tube with somebody, <clears throat> you know, using a really big sledgehammer on the side. So I start doing that. <clears throat> There's no response from the sub, even though they, they know they're going to have to surface at some point. And then the Americans start dropping depth charges, which are these drum-like things that sink and then they explode. So they weren't using the depth charges to try to sink it, but they, they were trying to force them to come up. So at this point, they're down there. They're running out of options. They feel like they're besieged. They feel like if they come up, they're going to get destroyed. And the commander of one of the subs says, load the special weapon. And they take the nuclear torpedo and they put it in the tube to fire. And he takes his half of the key and he puts it in there. And he says to his subordinate, put your key in. (laughs) And on the documentary, at least how they portrayed it, the subordinate was like... Put the key in, but he did. He follows orders, puts the key in, and they prepare to launch. And there's a pause in the action because the commander of the entire fleet of these submarines says he has the authority to override the commander of the vessel. And this individual, who's the commander, was someone who had been on a nuclear submarine that had been involved in a nuclear accident. And in that nuclear accident, a number of the men on his crew had been exposed to such high levels of radiation that they had died. And he had been very moved by this and very affected by seeing them pass away in this manner. And his wife describes him as, this is so Russian, this definite, the way she talks about him, says he was kind-hearted and calm, a real human, a real human. And he says to the commander of the sub, I do not give my permission. And the commander pushed back. And he said, I am in charge of the fleet. I do not give my consent. And it all turned right there, right at that moment on this one person, Sila, and his refusal to allow the launch of this. If this had been launched, the torpedo had the power of the bomb used in Hiroshima. It would have destroyed all the surrounding American fleet, and it would have been game on. And none of you would be here. None of us would be. So the commander of the fleet said, contact the Americans. And they opened up communication with the American fleet, which told them, please surface. They were allowed to surface, replenish their air, restore their batteries, and they turned around and went back to the Soviet Union. Both sides stood down. The crisis broke. When they went back home to the Soviet Union, they were told it would have been better for you if you had drowned rather than to surface. So the man that had made this moral choice (laughs) to preserve the world was not treated with respect and regard. 
but this was an extraordinary act of collection of mind, clarity of perception, moral restraint. And we all owe a great deal to him. So his name was Vasily Arkavo. And he wound up dying of a cancer that was caused from radiation exposure from the accident on the boat I described. So this points to our interrelationship and the tremendous effect one person can have when they choose to do or not to do. So this practice of sila, you know, we practice in small things, we practice in immediate things. But you can see that, especially in our modern world now, with the incredible multiplier effect that we have with technology, the power we have now, how important this very basic grounding in goodwill and in moral restraint is. So with that in mind, may you undertake the training to develop the many gifts of sila, the power of moral restraint, the directing of the mind towards a commitment to harmlessness and towards cultivation of the well-being of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.